0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales podcast. My name is Taiko Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, welcome. I'm happy to have you regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales podcast believes that trans rights are human rights, that abortion is health care, and that black lives matter, and we stand in solidarity with you all. Transcripts of the show, as well as links to institutions fighting for reproductive justice, can all be found in the show notes. Bartleby the Scrivener, A Story of Wall Street I am a rather elderly man. The nature of my avocations for the last thirty years has brought me into more than ordinary contact with what would seem an interesting and somewhat singular set of men of whom as yet nothing that I know of has ever been written. And I mean the law copyists or scriveners. I have known very many of them, professionally and privately, and, if I pleased, could relate diverse histories at which good-natured gentlemen might smile and sentimental souls might weep. But I waive the biography of all other scriveners for a few passages in the life of Bartleby, who was a scrivener of the strangest I ever saw or heard of. While of other law copyists I might write the complete life, of Bartleby, nothing of that sort can be done." I believe that no materials exist for a full and satisfactory biography of this man. It is an irreparable loss to literature. Bartleby was one of those beings of whom nothing is ascertainable except from the original sources, and in this case those are very small. What my own astonished eyes saw of Bartleby, that is all I know of him, except indeed one vague report which will appear in the sequel. Ere introducing the Scrivener, as he first appeared to me, it is fit I make some mention of myself, my employees, my business, my chambers, and general surroundings, because some such description is indispensable to an adequate understanding of the chief character about to be presented. I am a man who, from his youth upwards, has been filled with a profound conviction that the easiest way of life is the best. Hence, though I belong to a profession proverbially energetic and nervous, even to turbulence at times— Yet nothing of that sort have I ever suffered to invade my peace. I am one of those unambitious lawyers who never addresses a jury or in any way draws down public applause, but in the cool tranquility of a snug retreat do a snug business among rich men's bonds and mortgages and title deeds. All who know me consider me an eminently safe man. The late John Jacob Astor, a personage little given to poetic enthusiasm, has no hesitation in pronouncing my first grand point to be prudence, my next method. I do not speak it in vanity, but simply record the fact that I was not unemployed in my profession by the late John Jacob Astor, a name which, I admit, I love to repeat, for it hath a rounded and orbicular sound to it, and rings like unto bullion. I will freely add that I was not indispensable to the late John Jacob Astor's good opinion. Sometime prior to the period at which this little history begins, my avocations have been largely increased. The good old office, now extinct in the state of New York, of a master in chancery, had been conferred upon me. It was not a very arduous office, but very pleasantly remunerative. I seldom lose my temper, much more seldom indulge in dangerous indignation at wrongs and outrages, but I must be permitted to be rash here and declare that I consider the sudden and violent abrogation of the office of master and chancery by the new constitution as a premature act." inasmuch as I had counted upon a life lease of the profits, whereas I only received those of a few short years. But this is by the way. My chambers were upstairs at number Blank Wall Street. At one end, they looked upon the white wall of the interior of a spacious skylight shaft penetrating the building from top to bottom. This view might have been considered rather tame than otherwise, deficient in what landscape painters call life, but if so, the view from the other end of my chambers offered at least a contrast, if nothing more. In that direction, my windows commanded an unobstructed view of a lofty brick wall, black by age and everlasting shade. Which wall required no spyglass to bring out its lurking beauties, but for the benefit of all nearsighted spectators, was pushed up to within ten feet of my window panes. Owing to the great height of the surrounding buildings and my chambers being on the second floor, the interval between this wall and mine, not a little, resembled a huge square cistern. At the period just preceding the advent of Bartleby, I had two persons as copyists in my employment and a promising lad as an office boy. First, Turkey, second, Nippers, third, Ginger Nut. These may seem names the likes of which are not usually found in the directory. In truth, they were nicknames, mutually conferred upon each other by my three clerks and were deemed expressive of their respective persons or characters. Turkey was a short Percy Englishman of about my own age, that is somewhat not far from sixty. In the morning, one might say, his face was of a fine florid hue, but after twelve o'clock meridian, his dinner hour, it blazed like a grate full of Christmas coals and continued blazing, but, as it were, with a gradual wane till six o'clock p.m., or thereabouts, after which I saw no more of the proprietor of the face, which, gaining its meridian with the sun, seemed to set with it to rise, culminate, and decline the following day with the like, regularity, and undiminished glory. There are many singular coincidences I have known in the course of my life, not the least among which was the fact that exactly when Turkey displayed his fullest beams from his red and radiant countenance, just then too, at that critical moment, began the daily period when I considered his business capacities as seriously disturbed for the remainder of the 24 hours. Not that he was absolutely idle or averse to business then, far from it. The difficulty was, he was apt to be altogether too energetic. There was a strange, inflamed, flurried, flighty recklessness of activity about him. He would be incautious in dipping his pen into his inkstand. All his blots upon my documents were dropped there after twelve o'clock meridian. Indeed, not only would he be reckless and sadly given to making blots in the afternoon, but some days he went further and was rather noisy. At such times, too, his face flamed with augmented blazonry, as if candle coal had been heaped on anthracite. He made an unpleasant racket with his chair, spilled his sandbox, in mending his pens, impatiently split them all to pieces and threw them on the floor in a sudden passion, stood up and leaned over his table, boxing his papers about in a most indecorous manner, very sad to behold in an elderly man like him. Nevertheless, as he was in many ways a most valuable person to me, and all the times before twelve o'clock meridian, was the quickest, steadiest creature too, accomplishing a great deal of work in a style not easy to be matched. For these reasons, I was willing to overlook his eccentricities, though indeed occasionally I remonstrated with him. I did this very gently, however, because, though the civilest, nay, the blandest and most reverential of men in the morning, yet in the afternoon he was disposed upon provocation to be slightly rash with his tongue, in fact insolent, now valuing his morning services as I did and resolved not to lose them, yet at the same time made uncomfortable by his inflamed ways after twelve o'clock, and being a man of peace, unwilling by my admonitions to call forth unseemly retorts from him. I took upon me one Saturday noon, he was always worse on Saturdays, to hint to him very kindly that perhaps now that he was growing old, it might be well to abridge his labors. In short, he need not come to my chambers after twelve o'clock, but dinner over had best go home to his lodgings and rest himself till tea time. But no, he insisted upon his afternoon devotions. His countenance became intolerably fervid, as he oratorically assured me, gesticulating with a long ruler at the other end of the room, that if his services in the morning were useful, how indispensable then in the afternoon. "'With submission, sir,' said Turkey on this occasion, "'I consider myself your right-hand man. "'In the morning I but marshal and deploy my columns, "'but in the afternoon I put myself at the head and gallantly charge the foe thus.' "'And he made a violent thrust with the ruler. "'But the blots, Turkey,' Intimated I. True. But with submission, sir, behold these hairs. I am getting old. Surely, sir, a blot or two of a warm afternoon is not to be severely urged against grey hairs. Old age, even if it blot the page, is honourable. With submission, sir, we both are getting old. This appeal to my fellow feeling was hardly to be resisted. At all events I saw that go he would not. So... I made up my mind to let him stay, resolving, nevertheless, to see to it, that during the afternoon he had to do with my less important papers. Nippers, the second on my list, was a whiskered, sallow, and upon the whole rather piratical-looking young man of about five and twenty. I always deemed him the victim of two evil powers, ambition and indigestion. The ambition was evinced by a certain impatience of the duties of a mere copyist, an unwarrantable usurpation of strictly professional affairs such as the original drawing up of legal documents. The indigestion seemed betokened in an occasional nervous testiness and grinning irritability, causing the teeth to audibly grind together over mistakes committed in copying, unnecessary maledictions hissed rather than spoken in the heat of business, and especially by a continual discontent with the height of the table where he worked." Though of a very ingenious mechanical turn, nippers could never get this table to suit him. He put chips under it, blocks of various sorts, bits of pasteboard, and at last went so far as to attempt an exquisite adjustment by final pieces of folding blotting paper, but no invention would answer. If, for the sake of easing his back, he brought the table lid at a sharp angle while up towards his chin and wrote there, like a man using the steep roof of a Dutch house for his desk, then he declared that it stopped the circulation in his arms. If now he lowered the table to his waistbands and stooped over it in writing, then there was a sore aching in his back. In short, the truth of the matter was, Nippers knew not what he wanted, or if he wanted anything, it was to be rid of a Scribner's table altogether. Among the manifestations of his diseased ambition was a fondness he had for receiving visits from certain ambiguous-looking fellows in seedy coats, whom he called his clients— Indeed, I was aware that not only was he at times considerable of a ward politician, but he occasionally did a little business at the justices' courts and was not unknown on the steps of the tombs. I have good reason to believe, however, that one individual who called upon him at my chambers, and who, with a grand air, he insisted was his client, was no other than a dun and the alleged title deed, a bill. But with all his failings and the annoyances he caused me, Nippers, like his compatriot Turkey, was a very useful man to me. Wrote a neat, swift hand, and when he chose, was not deficient in a gentlemanly sort of deportment. Added to this, he always dressed in a gentlemanly sort of way, and so incidentally reflected credit upon my chambers. Whereas with respect to Turkey, I had much ado to keep him from being a reproach to me. His clothes were apt to look oily and smell of eating houses. He wore his pantaloons very loose and baggy in summer. His coats were execrable his hat not to be handled, but while the hat was a thing of indifference to me, inasmuch as his natural civility and deference, as a dependent Englishman always led him to doff it the moment he entered the room, yet his coat was another matter. Concerning his coats, I reasoned with him, but with no effect. The truth was, I suppose, that a man of so small an income could not afford to sport such a lustrous face and a lustrous coat at one and the same time. As Nippers once observed, Turkey's money went chiefly for red ink. One winter day I presented Turkey with a highly respectable-looking coat of my own, a padded grey coat of a most comfortable warmth, and which buttoned straight up from the knee to the neck. I thought Turkey would appreciate the favour and abate his rashness and obstreperousness of afternoons. But, no, I verily believe that buttoning himself up in so downy and blanket-like a coat had a pernicious effect upon him, upon the same principle that too much oats are bad for horses. In fact, precisely as a rash, restive horse is said to feel his oats— So, Turkey felt his coat. It made him insolent. He was a man whom prosperity harmed. Though concerning the self indulgent habits of Turkey, I had my own private surmises, yet touching nippers, I was well persuaded that whatever might be his faults in other respects, he was at least a temperate young man. But indeed, nature herself seemed to have been his vintner, and at his birth charged him so thoroughly with an irritable, brandy like disposition that all subsequent potations were needless. And When I consider how, amid the stillness of my chambers, Nippers would sometimes impatiently rise from his seat and, stooping over his table, spread his arms wide apart, seize the whole desk, and move it and jerk it with a grim grinding motion on the floor as if the table were a perverse voluntary agent intent on thwarting and vexing him, I plainly perceive that for Nippers, brandy and water were altogether superfluous. It was fortunate for me that, owing to its peculiar cause, indigestion, the irritability and consequent nervousness of nippers were mainly observable in the morning, while in the afternoon he was comparatively mild, so that turkey's paroxysms only coming on about 12 o'clock, I never had to do with their eccentricities at one time. Their fits relieved each other like guards. When nippers was on, turkey's was off, and vice versa. This was a good natural arrangement under the circumstances. Ginger Nut, the third on my list, was a lad some twelve years old. His father was a car man, ambitious of seeing his son on the bench instead of a cart before he died, so he sent him to my office as student-at-law, errand-boy, and cleaner and sweeper at the rate of one dollar a week. He had a little desk to himself, but he did not use it much. Upon inspection, the drawer exhibited a great array of the shells of various sorts of nuts. Indeed, to this quick-witted youth, the whole noble sciences of the law was contained in a nutshell. Not the least among the employments of Ginger Nut, as well as one which he discharged with the most alacrity, was his duty as cake and apple purveyor for turkey and nippers. Copying law papers being proverbially dry, husky sort of business, my two Scriveners were fain to moisten their mouths very often with Spitzenbergs to be had at the numerous stalls nigh the Custom House and Post Office. Also, they sent Ginger Nut very frequently for that peculiar cake, small, flat, round, and very spicy— After which he had been named by them. Of a cold morning, when business was but dull, Turkey would gobble up scores of these cakes as if they were mere wafers. Indeed, they sell them at the rate of six or eight for a penny, the scrape of his pen blending with the crunchings of the crisp particles in his mouth. Of all the fiery afternoon blunders and furried rashnesses of Turkey was his once moistening of a ginger cake between his lips and clapping it on to a mortgage for a seal. I came within an ace of dismissing him then, but he mollified me by making an oriental bow and saying, with submission, sir, it was generous of me to find you in stationery on my own account. Now, my original business, that of a conveyancer and title hunter and drawer-up of recondite documents of all sorts, was considerably increased by receiving the master's office. There was now great work for Scriveners. Not only must I push the clerks already with me, but I must have additional help. In answer to my advertisement, a motionless young man one morning stood upon my office threshold, the door being open, for it was summer. I can see that figure now, pallidly neat, pitiably respectable, incurably forlorn. It was Bartleby. After a few words touching his qualifications, I engaged him, glad to have among my corps of copyists a man of so singularly sedate an aspect which I thought might operate beneficially upon the flighty temper of Turkey and the fiery one of Nippers. I should have stated before that ground-glass folding doors divided my premises into two parts, one of which was occupied by my scriveners, the other by myself. According to my humor, I threw open these doors or closed them. I resolved to assign Bartleby a corner by the folding doors, but on my side of them so as to have this quiet man within easy call in case any trifling thing was to be done. I placed his desk close up to a small side window in that part of the room, a window which originally had afforded a lateral view of certain grimy backyards and bricks, but which, owing to subsequent erections, commanded at present no view at all, though it gave some light. Within three feet of the panes was a wall, and the light came down from far above, between two lofty buildings, as from a very small opening in a dome. Still further to a satisfactory arrangement, I procured a high green folding screen which might entirely isolate Bartleby from my sight, though not remove him from my voice. And thus, in a manner, privacy and society were conjoined. At first, Bartleby did an extraordinary quantity of writing, as if long famishing for something to copy. He seemed to gorge himself on my documents. There was no pause for digestion. He ran a day and night line, copying by sunlight and by candlelight. I should have been quite delighted with his application had he been cheerfully industrious, but he wrote on silently, palely, mechanically. It is, of course, an indispensable part of a scrivener's business to verify the accuracy of his copy word by word. Where there are two or more scriveners in an office, they assist each other in this examination, one reading from the copy, the other holding the original. It is a very dull, wearisome, and lethargic affair. I can readily imagine that to some sanguine temperaments it would be altogether intolerable. For example, I cannot credit that the meddlesome poet Byron would have contentedly sat down with Bartleby to examine a law document of, say, 500 pages closely written in a crimpy hand. Now and then, in the haste of business, it had been my habit to assist in comparing some brief document myself, calling turkey or nippers for this purpose. One object I had, in placing Bartleby so handy to me behind the screen, was to avail myself of his services on such trivial occasions. It was on the third day, I think, of his being with me, and before any necessity had arisen for having his own writing examined, that, being much hurried to complete a small affair I had in hand, I abruptly called to Bartleby. In my haste and natural expectancy of instant compliance, I sat with my head bent over the original on my desk and my right hand sideways and somewhat nervously extended with the copy so that immediately upon emerging from his retreat, Bartleby might snatch it and proceed to business without the least delay. In this very attitude did I sit when I called to him, rapidly stating what it was I wanted him to do, namely to examine a small paper with me. Imagine my surprise, nay my consternation, when, without moving from his privacy, Bartleby, in a singularly mild, firm voice, replied, I would prefer not to. I sat a while in perfect silence, rallying my stunned faculties. Immediately it occurred to me that my ears had deceived me, or Bartleby had entirely misunderstood my meaning. I repeated my request in the clearest tone, I could assume, but in quite as clear a one came the previous reply. I would prefer not to. "'Prefer not to,' echoed I, rising in a high excitement and crossing the room with a stride. "'What do you mean? Are you moonstruck? I want you to help me compare this sheet here. Take it,' and I thrust it towards him. "'I would prefer not to,' said he. I looked at him steadfastly. His face was leanly composed, his grey eye dimly calm. Not a wrinkle of agitation rippled him. Had there been the least uneasiness, anger, impatience, or impertinence in his manner— In other words, had there been anything ordinarily human about him, doubtless I should have violently dismissed him from the premises, but, as it was, I should have as soon thought of turning my pale plaster-of-Paris bust of Cicero out of doors. I stood gazing at him a while as he went on with his own writing, and then reseated myself at my desk. "'This is very strange,' thought I. "'What had one best do?' But my business hurried me. I concluded to forget the matter for the present, reserving it for my future leisure.' So, calling nippers from the other room, the paper was speedily examined. A few days after this, Bartleby concluded four lengthy documents being quadruplicates of a week's testimony taken before me in my high court of chancery. It became necessary to examine them. It was an important suit, and great accuracy was imperative. Having all things arranged, I called turkey, nippers, and gingernut from the next room, meaning to place the four copies in the hands of my four clerks while I should read from the original accordingly turkey nippers and gingernut had taken their seats in a row each with his document in hand when i called to bartleby to join this interesting group bartleby quick i am waiting i heard a slow scrape of his chair legs on the uncarpeted floor and soon he appeared standing at the entrance of his hermitage what is wanted said he mildly the copies the copies said i hurriedly we're going to examine them there and i held towards him the fourth quadruplicate "'I would prefer not to,' he said, and gently disappeared behind the screen. "'For a few moments I was turned into a pillar of salt, "'standing at the head of my seated column of clerks. "'Recovering myself, I advanced towards the screen "'and demanded the reason for such extraordinary conduct. "'Why do you refuse?' "'I would prefer not to. "'With any other man I should have flown outright into a dreadful passion, "'scorned all further words, and thrust him ignominiously from my presence.' But there was something about Bartleby that not only strangely disarmed me, but in a wonderful manner touched and disconcerted me. I began to reason with him. These are your own copies we're about to examine. It is labor saving to you because one examination will answer for your four papers. It is common usage. Every copyist is bound to help examine his copy. Is it not so? Will you not speak? Answer! I prefer not to, he replied in a flute like tone. It seemed to me that while I had been addressing him, he carefully revolved every statement that I made, fully comprehended the meaning, could not gainsay the irresistible conclusions, but at the same time some paramount consideration prevailed with him to reply as he did. You are decided, then, not to comply with my request, a request made according to common usage and common sense? He briefly gave me to understand that on that point my judgment was sound. Yes, his decision was irreversible. It is not seldom the case that when a man is browbeaten in some unprecedented and violently unreasonable way, he begins to stagger in his own plainest faith. He begins, as it were, vaguely to surmise that, wonderful as it may be, all the justice and all the reason is on the other side. Accordingly, if any disinterested persons are present, he turns to them for some reinforcement for his own faltering mind. Turkey, said I, wh- what do you think of this? Am I not right? With submission, sir, said Turkey, with his blandest tone. I think that you are. Nippers, said I, what do you think of it? I think I should kick him out of the office. The reader of nice perceptions will here perceive that, it being morning, Turkey's answer is couched in polite and tranquil terms, but Nippers replies in ill-tempered ones. Or, to repeat a previous sentence, Nippers' ugly mood was on duty, and Turkey's off. Gingernut, said I, willing to enlist the smallest suffrage in my behalf, what do you think of it? "'I think, sir, he's a little loony,' replied Ginger Nut with a grin. "'You hear what they say,' said I, turning towards the screen. "'Come forth and do your duty.' But he vouchsafed no reply. I pondered a moment in sore perplexity, but once more business hurried me. I determined again to postpone the consideration of this dilemma to my future leisure. With a little trouble, we made out to examine the papers without Bartleby, though at every page or two, Turkey deferentially dropped his opinion that this proceeding was quite out of the common.' while Nippers, twitching in his chair with a dyspeptic nervousness, ground out between his set teeth occasional hissing maledictions against the stubborn oaf behind the screen. And for his, Nippers' part, this was the first and the last time he would do another man's business without pay. Meanwhile, Bartleby sat in his hermitage, oblivious to everything but his own peculiar business there. Some days passed, the Scrivener being employed upon another lengthy work, His late, remarkable conduct led me to regard his ways narrowly. I observed that he never went to dinner, indeed that he never went anywhere. As yet, I had never of my personal knowledge known him to be outside of my office. He was a perpetual sentry in the corner. At about eleven o'clock, though, in the morning, I noticed that Ginger Nut would advance towards the opening in Bartleby's screen, as if silently beckoned thither by a gesture invisible to me where I sat. The boy would then leave the office, jingling a few pence, and reappear with a handful of ginger nuts, which he delivered in the hermitage, receiving two of the cakes for his trouble. He lives then on ginger nuts, thought I. Never eats a dinner, properly speaking. He must be a vegetarian then. But no, he never eats even vegetables. He eats nothing but ginger nuts. My mind then ran on in reveries concerning the probable effects upon the human constitution of living entirely on ginger nuts. Gingernuts are so called because they contain ginger as one of their peculiar constituents and the final flavoring one. Now, what was ginger? A hot, spicy thing. Was Bartleby hot and spicy? Not at all. Ginger, then, had no effect upon Bartleby. Probably he preferred it should have none. Nothing so aggravates an earnest person as a passive resistance. If the individual so resisted be of a not-inhumane temper, and the resisting one perfectly harmless in his passivity, then, in the better moods of the former, he will endeavor charitably to construe to his imagination what proves impossible to be solved by his judgment. Even so, for the most part, I regarded Bartleby and his ways. Poor fellow, thought I, he means no mischief. It is plain he intends no insolence. His aspect sufficiently evinces that his eccentricities are involuntary. He is useful to me. I can get along with him. If I turn him away, the chances are he will fall in with some less indulgent employer and then he will be rudely treated and perhaps driven forth miserably to starve. Yes. Here I can cheaply purchase a delicious self-approval. To befriend Bartleby, to humor him in his strange willfulness will cost me little or nothing while I lay up in my soul what will eventually prove a sweet morsel for my conscience. But this mood was not invariable with me. The passiveness of Bartleby sometimes irritated me. I felt strangely goaded on to encounter him in new opposition, to elicit some angry spark from him answerable to my own. But indeed, I might as well have essayed to strike fire with my knuckles against a bit of Windsor soap. But one afternoon, the evil impulse in me mastered me, and the following little scene ensued. Bartleby, said I, when those papers are all copied, I will compare them with you. I would prefer not to. How? Surely you do not mean to persist in that mulish vagary. "'No answer.' "'I threw open the folding doors nearby, and turning upon Turkey and Nippers, exclaimed in an excited manner, "'He says a second time he won't examine his papers. What do you think of it, Turkey?' "'It was afternoon, be it remembered. Turkey sat, glowing like a brass boiler, his bald head steaming, his hands reeling among his blotted papers. "'Think of it!' roared Turkey. "'I think I'll just step behind his screen and block his eyes for him!' So saying, Turkey rose to his feet and threw his arms into a pugilistic position, He was hurrying away to make good his promise when I detained him, alarmed at the effect of incautiously rousing Turkey's combativeness after dinner. Sit down, Turkey, said I, and hear what Nippers has to say. What do you think of it, Nippers? Would I not be justified in immediately dismissing Bartleby? Excuse me, that is for you to decide. I think his conduct quite unusual, and indeed unjust, as regards Turkey and myself, but it may only be a passing whim. Ah, exclaimed I, you have strangely changed your mind, then. You speak very gently of him now. All beer, cried Turkey. Gentleness is effects of beer. Nibbers and I dined together today. You see how gentle I am, sir? Shall I go and black his eyes? You refer to Bartleby, I suppose. "Um, No, not today, Turkey, I replied. Pray, put up your fists. I closed the doors and again advanced towards Bartleby. I felt additional incentives tempting me to my fate. I burned to be rebelled against again. I remembered that Bartleby never left the office. Bartleby, said I, Ginger nut is away. Just step round to the post office, won't you? It was but a three-minute walk. And see if there is anything for me. I would prefer not to. You will not? I prefer not. I staggered to my desk and sat there in a deep study. My blind inveteracy returned. Was there any other thing in which I could procure myself to be ignominiously repulsed by this lean, penniless white, my hired clerk? What added thing is there perfectly reasonable that he will be sure to refuse to do? Bartleby! No answer. Bartleby! In a louder tone. No answer. Bartleby! I roared. Like a very ghost, agreeable to the laws of magical invocation, at the third summons he appeared at the entrance of his hermitage. Go to the next room and tell Nippers to come to me. I prefer not to, he respectfully and slowly said and mildly disappeared. "'Very good, Bartleby,' said I, in a quiet sort of serenely severe self-possessed tone, intimating the unalterable purpose of some terrible retribution very close at hand. At the moment I half intended something of the kind, but upon the whole, as it was drawing towards my dinner hour, I thought it best to put on my hat and walk home for the day, suffering much from perplexity and distress of mind. "'Shall I acknowledge it?' The conclusion of this whole business was that it soon became a fixed fact of my chambers that a pale young scrivener, by the name of Bartleby, and a desk there, that he copied for me at the usual rate of four cents a folio, one hundred words, but he was permanently exempt from examining the work done by him, that duty being transferred to turkey and nippers, one of compliment doubtless to their superior acuteness. Moreover, said Bartleby, was never on any account to be dispatched on the most trivial errand of any sort, and that even if entreated to take upon him such a matter, it was generally understood that he would prefer not to. In other words, that he should refuse point-blank. And that is the end of the first part of the story. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the show and want to help support it, please come support me on Patreon. Joe Escott, Lauren Maines, and John McDonough, thank you for your support. Please go and get vaccinated for anything and everything you are eligible for. If you see a racist out and about, throw a big handful of peanut butter on him. And always remember that the most important step a person can take is always the next one. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week.